and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. First of all, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. We truly appreciate you giving us your time. It's your most valuable resource, and we don't take it lightly. If you enjoyed today's conversation, we would appreciate it if you would share it. Share it on social media. Send a text or an email to a friend who listens to podcasts. Subscribe somebody. Just grab their phone and just say, hey, I think you'd like to listen to this podcast. Those are the types of things that have helped us expand our reach. So we appreciate everybody who has already done so. And if you would do that in the future, it will really help us as we continue to build this thing out. Now to today's guest. Jordan Steffi is somebody who I got introduced to because of his connection to sports. We were connected and Jordan played his college football as the quarterback at the University of Maryland. And we connected on sports, but really we share a passion for much more than that. Jordan is somebody who really is a mentor at his core. He is a leader. He is somebody who founded a nonprofit called the Children Deserve a Chance Foundation and Atalo Prep. And at his organization, they help lead young men and women to college. And they mentor them. They get them SAT prep. They help them learn how to code. They help them with life skills. And his nonprofit, which I've had the fortune to really get to know and find out about, just they're changing the world. They're an inspiration. He is a community leader. He's based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And Jordan is somebody who cares deeply about making a dent in this world and leaving it better than how he found it. So while he definitely used sports to get into college and leveraged sports to get into college, he's going to talk about how much he values connection. And Jordan is absolutely a connector. He's a deep thinker. He's somebody who uses vocabulary very intentionally. And he's someone who doesn't just talk the talk. He also walks the walk. And I am just really grateful to have him in my life and to call him a friend. And we've collaborated on some stuff in the past. And I can't wait to see what Jordan does in the future while he also continues to ground himself in the present and do amazing work. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Jordan Steffi. Jordan 
So excited to have you on the podcast. It's been a long time coming. We've known each other for a few years now. We were introduced by a mutual friend, Andrew Friedson. So shout out to Andrew, um, who is in politics now and is doing amazing things. And uh, I think both of us have known Andrew for a while now. And the writing was always on the wall with Andrew. You could always see that it was going to happen. But to see him fulfilling his sort of vision for himself and his dream is, is inspiring. So shout out to Andrew. And uh, we'll make sure that he gets a copy of this conversation once it's finished. But what I wanted to start with you today is for you to share your story and to share your upbringing, because I think your story and your upbringing has a lot to do with where you're at today and what you're doing. So give everyone some context of what life was like for you as a kid. Yeah, um, it's interesting because the, the more I reflect on this, the picture becomes actually less clear, um, not more. Um, you know, I, I had I had a great childhood for a bunch of reasons, um, and, but the 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 reality was is that I grew up with a single mom um, who is is amazing. Um, someone to this day who would do whatever it takes. Um, she's the example of somebody who's who's scrappy, somebody who's um, you know, has unconditional love for her child, etc. But um, grew up grew up poor, um, and as I look back on it, um, I always joke around. I say, if I, if I was to write a book for the first twenty years of my life, the book would be called "Stuck in the Middle," um, and it was for a bunch of reasons. I I'm biracial. My mom's white. My dad, um, I believe, is black or or um, Latinx. Um, I went to a school with some affluence. Um, but I was the kid who lived in the subsidized housing. You know, there's just a whole bunch of kind of pieces of my life. I was the, I was the athlete and yet I was kind of interested in academics. Um, but I didn't really fit in anywhere. And, and so I'd say the first 20 years, I was kind of in, in between all of these different spaces. Um, what I've learned since then is, is, um, the blessing that that was is to be able to, to be a bridge, to be able to empathize and understand um, what it is to be to have some means, what it is to have no means, um, what it is to feel misunderstood, etc. So, um, bounced around, went to a bunch, of, you know, to several different schools. Um, but uh, for me, eighth grade was really kind of a defining moment. Uh, got called down to the principal's office. My mom's there, the principal's there, and. Um, they said, you know, we, we found the stuff in your locker and we know what you're doing. Um, and at that time I was making some, some poor choices. I was running around with some people I shouldn't have run around with. And, um, and so this was kind of the final straw for me. Um, I'd gotten in a little bit of trouble before that. And essentially what came from this was I was assigned a mentor. And um, if you fast forward kind of four years to my senior Jordan, who, yeah. who assigned you a mentor? When you say I was assigned a mentor, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think it was a, it was a combination of, uh, of the principal of my school, my, um, the kind of the local um, law enforcement sounds way too professional, but, you know, I think it was a combination of people who were thinking about um, the poor choices that I was making. I was, you know, around a lot of people who were dealing drugs and, and things like that. And so I think it was a collection of them that said, Hey, we want to do something for them for, for him. Um, and a mentor is probably the best thing. And so when you're saying I, you were assigned, who was that person and how did they come into your life? And what did that, what did all that look like? Yeah, I'll never forget. So, 
Um, I was in eighth grade at the time, but they knew that I um, showed promise at, at, uh, athletically. So every day I would take the bus from the middle school that I was going to, to the high school. And I'd actually work out with the high school football team. So I was eighth grader getting to work out with the high school football team. And um, so I, the, my, my first day back to school, I take the bus over to the high school and we'd kind of sit in the gymnasium before the strength and conditioning coach would come and open up the weight room. And I'll never forget, I'm sitting there my first day back and the way that the, the gym was set up is there's kind of these doors that you enter and then across the gym, back in the corner was the weight room. So I'm sitting back by the weight room and the gym door opens and this guy, my mentor now, walks in. His name was Daryl Daniel. And Daryl at the time was in the NFL. Um, he had gone to, to my high school. I mean, this guy was God to everybody in, in our school. And sure enough, Daryl Daniel walks in and I'm thinking that he's going to come across to me and like, we're going to be buddies and, you know, and I'll never forget, he walks in and, and everything stops. He comes across the gym and the first words that Daryl ever says to me are, boy, you're really messing up. And here I am like thinking it's going to be this moment. And I just got embarrassed in front of everyone. And the thing that to this day sticks with me with Daryl is that, um, he, he loved me to success. He didn't love me to death. And I think that that's a big thing that's kind of I've carried with me in all the different environments that I've been is what does it mean to love people to success and not love them to death? And I think he started off our relationship in that way by saying, listen, we're going to acknowledge the reality here. Um, but then what he did is he helped me to formulate a plan and he held me accountable to my dreams. You mentioned dad not being around. Were there other men in your life before he came along that had an influence on you? I'm just curious, your relationship with men. Yeah, I mean, my grandfather um, on my mom's side was, was very present, especially early in my childhood. Um, and then my mom kind of had dated, and so she had a couple boyfriends. Eventually, it might have been my eighth or ninth grade year, she ended up getting married. Um, and unfortunately, that didn't, didn't end up you know, lasting, but, um, I, I had probably two or three other males in my life who, um, you know, had an influence. And the other thing I would say is a lot of my friends growing up, their fathers kind of took me under their wing and, and looking back on that, um, I don't take that for granted. I think that it, it, it was critical to me, um, you know, in my childhood. You mentioned growing up poor, but being at a school with affluence, what was your relationship with money like from a youngster? How did you think about money? You mentioned dealing drugs and if you could just expand a little bit of what it was like to not have means, but be around people that have means and, and your relationship with money. Yeah. I mean, so I was obsessed with money. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a story that happened a little bit further down the road, but you know, I was obsessed with it. I think we, you know, what you focus on expands and, 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 especially in my childhood, um, not knowing what dinner was going to be that night or um, if the lights were going to get shut off again or if we were going to get, you know, end up getting evicted. Um, those types of things and getting evicted. Money was always top of mind. And so um, I was obsessed with it, you know, and I think, um, yeah, that that shaped a lot of the decisions that I made early on, good and bad. And were you at a private school for high school when you're going from eighth grade to high school? Is that a private no, school? I was at a public school. I went to all public schools. So it's just that you're in a low-income housing area, but that area also had 
nice houses or, or whatever you want to, you want to call that. Exactly. Exactly. So subsidized housing communities. Um, so essentially the, the short of it is all the urban housing gets occupied. And so they start building subsidized housing communities in uh, more rural or suburban communities. And so essentially um, the nice way of putting it is, or not, maybe not so nice way is just, they, they build this housing and all the poor kids live there, but go to the school where everybody else who doesn't live in that community tends to have means. And what, how do you think being around those people with means, you mentioned being friends with their dads and them having an impact on you. If you didn't have that, because a lot of people in this country don't even ever see that. They never, they don't even touch it. I mean, like I live right, right outside Washington, DC and, people that live in Southeast Washington, DC, when I meet with them, they're like, yeah, I've never even been out of my block, couple of blocks. I mean, you've heard these stories. I'm curious for you how being around it influenced you. It was everything. And, uh, and I realize that even more now looking back, um, I, you know, one of the things we say around here a lot is you'll only go as far as the people, you know, and um, you know, I had friends whose fathers belonged to the country club. You know, I remember, even though I only lasted for three days, I got a job at the country club because of a friend's father. Um, and you start to pick up little tips and tricks and you just see how people behave and, um, and you learn about things that people do, you know. And so I think that, that exposure um, was huge for me growing up. And to this day, I mean, um, there are so many people that I meet and get exposed to where it's just this aha moment like, oh, you can do that? Oh, that's interesting. And so I think it was, it was, it was a major um, part of my development and how, how I would kind of continue to progress, um, not only as a, as a youth, but, but now into to, you know, my adulthood um, was that exposure to, to different people. You mentioned liking academics. Why were you interested in academics? Uh, a lot of people that you played basketball, you played football. I don't, did you play baseball? Did you play a third sport? Or track, you, yeah. You did track. Uh, yeah. So, so you're a three-sport athlete a lot of people that are good at those things might not care about academics, but you mentioned that you were, you were kind of interesting because you were interested in academics, you're good at athletics, uh, you know, being biracial or mixed. And so why was there a draw to academics? Can you go back and just uh, put your finger on that? Yeah. And, and, and to be, to be fully transparent, um, I was, I, my grades didn't show that I cared about academics through high school. Um, I had a very low GPA. Um, in fact, it was funny because when I ended up eventually getting into to a good business school later on, um, I compared my high school transcript with then my, my college transcript, and they were very different. Um, I, I think it was just in part of that exposure to some of my friend's parents and then saying, okay, but how, what'd you do before this? What'd you do before this? And in most cases, it always kind of fell back to, I went to this college, I did, you know, and so it was like, ah, so this college thing is pretty important. And, and again, remember at this time, you know, my mom had, had dropped out of high school to have, you know, when she had me, um, I wasn't really exposed to a lot of people who had gone to, you know, to college and beyond. So um, I think that that piqued my interest. But then I just didn't have the, I didn't transfer the discipline that I had to prepare for sports to the academics. And I think in college is where I began to kind of start to put those pieces together. 
when did the desire to get into college come into your your vision? Yeah, I, I think it was it was either my eighth or ninth grade year after I had met Daryl. Um, it's funny, American Idol came on at that time. So we're we're going back years, and American Idol was on Monday nights. And I remember the thing Daryl used to 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 always say, you know, was um, you know, the bigger the dream, the more the sacrifice. And um, and so it was always like, what's your sacrifice going to be? And as crazy as it sounds at that time, um, and we didn't have cable. So the, in some cases, our whole week was surrounded by Monday nights and American Idol being on like the time that we would kind of huddle around the TV. And so I was like, all right, the sacrifice is going to be Monday nights while everybody else is watching American Idol. I'm going to go run. And I ran for the, the entirety of the show. Um, and so I think at that point, I knew that sports was, I had, so I knew Daryl. So again, we're going to, we'll only go as far as the people we know. So I knew Daryl, he was an African-American male who had gone to college, but he went to college for sports. So for me, it was, all right, I've got to get there through sports. Um, and so I just started paying the price then. And, and it was, I had, I had already made my mind up that it was going to happen. So if I'm being honest, there was never a doubt that I was going to go to college. It's so interesting because you talk about academics becoming more important to you as you got older. And I hear it so often for people, especially in impoverished areas, that sports is just the gateway into a world that they probably would not have explored. Um, if you didn't play sports, where do you think you would be today? That's scary. It's scary. I mean, given everything that kind of all the other circumstances and realities were the same, uh, jail, I, I, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know because I would have probably took shortcuts, you know, and, and, um, and I think what we've learned is, is it's just a matter of time before those things catch up with you. So, um, I certainly wouldn't have had the grades to get into a competitive school or anything remotely close to that. And as, as I've learned now in the work that, you know, we're doing um, with the foundation, at some point, the headwind just becomes so strong that you either kind of completely succumb to it and just say that I'm just going to be poor for the rest of my life, or people start looking at ways to take shortcuts. Um, and I think that's scary um, to think back to that. but. Um, yeah, at this point, I don't know what else I would have done. It's just interesting because I think both of us truly value education. And we'll, we'll talk about your college football career, but we both are, are big believers in the power of education. But a 14, 15-year-old kid, for them to have that wisdom is, is short-sighted. And for us to think like they're going to just pour themselves into academics, which is not as exciting. It's not as interesting. It's not as sexy. It, it's not as fun, right? Uh, as throwing a football or playing basketball. And so I've been doing a little mental gymnastics as I think about how beneficial sports is or is not, or what would happen if we shifted the conversation for a lot of our youth to say, forget sports, like just do academics. I think you would miss a lot of potential because a lot of kids at 14, they're just getting started. Like they're, they're so sports, if, if they need to use that to stay in on a certain path, 
then let's do that. I, we, you, you introduced me to Tori Smith, who I had on the podcast, and he talked about he got good grades because he wanted to go play football in college, and it was very clear for him. And he didn't smoke, and he didn't drink, and he didn't do this stuff because of football. He, he knew that he wanted to go to college, and the way he was going to go to college was football. And so it became clear for him that that was just the way he was going to act. And so, like, I, I sometimes think that sports can be overblown and overused. But as I think about Tori and I think about you talking, that eighth grade decision that you made and got in trouble, if you don't have that spark and have that idea of like, wait, I could play college football, you might just decide to go down a different path to get the resources that you desire because you're hungry. Um, and so that, that's actually crystallizing for me right now in a way that hasn't crystallized before. So it's interesting, and I grapple with this all the time as well. You know, one of the things that my um, program right now, my nonprofit, we we actually have a very do very uh, little with sports, um, for this kind of reason that you're talking about. And here's one of the reasons why I'm really optimistic right now is that there are other other um, it's not even other narratives. There are other examples that are existing um representation matters brian so i as much as my teachers in high school i never had a person of color as a teacher um and i probably had some teachers that were low income but that didn't come to the top of the conversation so the first person who was close to me that was successful was a professional athlete and I think that right now, where we're starting to see a little bit of a shift, when you think about someone like a Maverick Carter and what he's been able to do with LeBron James, when you're thinking about some of these athletes who are now um, opening the conversation and being um, as, as visible with their business endeavors and, and their philanthropic work and all of these other things as they are with their athletics, I'm optimistic because black and brown kids are seeing people who look like them who are still perceived as successful doing other things beyond just sports. And I think that um, for the person who loves sports, I know obviously Tori very well, he loves football. And um, he just happens that to, be, uh, to have a lot of traits that are going to make him successful in anything he does, but he loves football. I didn't actually love football. For me, it was a way out. Um, for some other people, you know, it's a way out. But I think what I'm, what I'm getting at is this idea that representation matters. And the more, and then what happens, which is kind of funny, is, is then once you see someone like you who's doing something else, then you can just appreciate for what it is. And it no longer sometimes becomes about race or someone looking like you. And that's just kind of uh, this, this crazy dynamic. But anyway, the long story short of this is just, um, I think representation really matters. I think all I knew at the time of people who looked like me who were successful were um, professional athletes. And I think as time goes on, we're going to see people of color who are film producers and who run podcasts and who do other things that and, and own basketball teams and, and businesses. And it's going to give a lot of people someone to look up to in not just sports. Look, regardless of what people think politically, um, we're, we're having this conversation in the middle of coronavirus stuff, we'll call it. And you're watching the briefing with Mike Pence and, and you do see Ben Carson on the stage and you, you do see the Surgeon General on the stage and they're African-Americans and you see women uh, on there. And so even with our president, who many think is 
whatever ist you want to put on it. And it's even with that climate, you still see that going on, which is just kind of fascinating to your point about being optimistic and hopeful. And, you know, regardless where you stand politically, I think those athletes to your point have really shifted where it used to be like, just play your sport, stay in your lane and look, I'll give LeBron a ton of credit for this because I think he has led the charge. Like he's going to speak his mind. And if he yeah. loses some shoes or some endorsements because of it, so be it. Uh, and there's also just, a, I'll give you an example. I, I went to the NBA combine years ago and interviewed basketball players. And one after the next had a story like yours, you know, single mom, uh, poverty, Boom, 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 boom. And in the last couple of years, as I started to see the guys get drafted, it, it, it's changed. And that's a small sample size, right? Like, I'm not, I, this is correlate, correlation, you know, it's not scientifically backed. But I, I, I guarantee you, like, watch the NBA draft whenever they have it next. And just notice how many of those kids now have two parents. And now, like, what they're wearing. And people criticize the NBA when they made their players wear, you know, a certain type of outfit to the games, but it changed how these players thought about themselves. And you could, you could say whatever you want about Twitter and Instagram, but it changes how somebody has to brand themselves and be conscious of what they're saying and how they're saying it. And I think there is value in that. And there is value in that because to your point, people are looking to them and whether it's subconsciously entering their mind or it's conscious, if that person doesn't do anything but play high school basketball, but looks up to LeBron, they then might say, Oh, LeBron's talking about education. I know that LeBron could go straight to the pros, but he started a school in in Akron and he's talking about reading. And so I think the narrative is changing and it's, it's exciting. Yeah, it really is. It really is. So, so you're in high school and, and you mentioned not loving football. Um, you're playing football, you're playing basketball, you're running track. You talk about also being in the middle and not sure, like, where do you fit in here? Was your identity largely just an athlete when you were in high school? What was your identity like as you were, as you were there? Yeah, I I definitely think it was, um, an athlete, which is, it's good when you're doing well. Um, it's not good when things start going, you know, um, in a less than ideal way. And so, um, yeah, you know, high school, it was the football player, the basketball player. Um, and I'd say in large part, I handled it well. But and certainly there, there are things that you look back on and you think even, even with all of the, um, the mentorship and guidance that I had, there were still a bunch of things that I, I, I handled completely wrong um, as I went through that process. What did you learn when you would handle things wrong? As you look back on it, what did you learn, especially in the role that you have now where you're working with kids that are in those same environments? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing, and this is, this may be taking a, a little bit of a shortcut uh, on the response, but I, I think that the biggest things I learned was, is you got to play tomorrow. And so, you know, whether today is good, bad, or indifferent, um, you're going to have to perform tomorrow. So don't get too high, don't get too low. Um, and the other piece of it is just like how important it is to 
regardless of how well things might be going for you to still stay grounded and, um, and empathetic and connected. Um, and I think that when, when things are going your way and everyone's telling you, you know, how great you are, it's really easy to kind of just kind of live in this world where it's, it's you and then everyone else. And, um, and that doesn't play itself out well um, over time. So give people some context when you say things are going well. How well was athletics going for you in high school? Yeah, I don't, I don't know whether it was six or eight, you know, dual threat quarterback in the country, 52 scholarship offers everywhere. Um, the bigger schools wanted me to play receiver, um, you know, the Michigans of the world. Um, but the, the now Clemson, you know, Clemson wanted me to play quarterback. I think my top five coming out of high school were Michigan State, Clemson, Penn State, Maryland, and Virginia Tech, and all those were to play quarterback. Um, so, you know, things were going well there. Basketball-wise, you know, scored over 1,000 points and had um, had a couple smaller offers back from a basketball standpoint. So, you know, athletically, things were going, were going really well. Um, and, you know, the coaches were in the school every day um, talking and – you know, to sit at Joe Paterno's, you know, kitchen table and, and have him tell me, you know, that, that um, I had a future at Penn State, et cetera. I mean, these were, these are moments you look back and it's like, wow, um, this was amazing. But ultimately through all of that, I ended up going to the University of Maryland and I ended up going there because of James Franklin. Um, and later on my relationship with Ralph Regan, which was a, a great and still is a great relationship. But um, Coach Franklin at the end of the day um, was just somebody who I connected to and, and, um, and I really aligned with his values and, and the vision that he had. Why was playing quarterback important to you? You know, I, I think back on that. I don't know how much of that was ego-driven um, as opposed to just I, I just want the ball in my hands, you know. And um, that's the one position where you pretty much can guarantee that it will be in your hands every play. Um, so I think it was more that than, than the position. Um, and, and it was also somewhat because there were people who said I couldn't do it, you know, and, um, and so, but I just, I enjoyed kind of the leadership part of, of being a quarterback. I enjoyed rallying the linemen and the receivers and the running backs and, um, and none of that changed throughout, throughout college. Was there anything in high school that you were able to do to leverage your influence or your fame or or whatever it was. And I say that, look, in your town, this is a big deal, right? You're, you're in, growing up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Joe Paterno, I would imagine, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. <laughs> At that time, there's probably no <laughs> bigger deal than that. Yeah. Was there anything that you recognized or started to realize while you were in high school about what could come from that? Um... I mean, at the time, it was just that, you know, I, I, everywhere I went, I knew somebody, you know, and everywhere I went, somebody was coming up to say hello and to talk about a game. And, and you know, what's crazy, Brian, even to this day, now we're talking 15 years later, um, very rarely does a day go by that somebody doesn't approach me on the streets or in the grocery store or what have you to talk about a game or, um, or now to talk about the work that we're doing in the community. So it was it really gave me an opportunity to, um, to build a lot of relationships, to meet a lot of people. Um, and 
ultimately, I think, to, to gain a lot of perspective, um, which has been super valuable. When did the idea of children deserve a chance or a toddler prep come into your, your thinking? When did that become something that you wanted to pursue? Yeah, it was really my senior year in high school. I had a chance. I was, I was about to score a thousand points in basketball and um, I wanted to do something a little different. So we did a fundraiser at that game where every point I had scored, people kind of pledged a certain amount of money and we were able to give that money to a classmate who was suffering with epilepsy and he needed a, uh, it was a brain surgery um, to help kind of slow the, the number of seizures that he was having on a daily basis. And so I think it was that event where we gave it to him and then a couple months go by and this kid shows up at my doorstep with his mother and they're just, they're both sobbing and talking about how this changes his life. And for me at the time, it was like, you know, we raised some money and we gave it to this kid to realize that like that act of generosity by our whole school you know, I was kind of the face of it, but our, our really our whole school got behind it, could change somebody's life. That feeling of fulfillment and satisfaction is a feeling that has never been topped by anything but giving. And I think so at that time, it, it just, it was like, wow, this feels really good. It's kind of selfish, honestly. And it was, but it was like, this person's life has been changed. We were able to play a small part in it. And I want this feeling again. And, uh, and I think as the years have gone on and we've been able to help, you know, now thousands and thousands of people, um, that feeling never goes away. Where do you feel it in your body as you're telling that story? Where do you feel it? I think in my, in my heart, you know. Um, And the biggest thing, you know, the law of familiarity. So the more you do something, the more common it becomes, the, the more we tend to take it for granted. And so I try to be super intentional about every scholar that's in our program. It's another one. And it's not the same as before. It's not going to be the same as something that's going to come in the future. It's them. It's their story. It's their one chance that they have at this life. Um, and what an opportunity and honor it is for us to play a part of that. And I, I feel that, that in my chest. When you were at Maryland, did you play at Penn State? We actually didn't play Penn State while I was at Maryland. We, we um, a couple years after I finished. Where was the biggest place you played that you can remember? Like, wow, we're playing here. I mean, Florida State, um, Virginia Tech, uh, Clemson. You know, was a crazy environment. And um, I mean, we played Virginia Tech my freshman year, my true freshman year, on Thursday night football uh, on ESPN. We got crushed. Um, but just being there 90,000 people on a Thursday night, I mean, you literally could not hear the person stand screaming next to you. It was that loud. Um, and it was just like, wow, this is college football. What did that feel like? Um, in hindsight, I mean, it was, it was both, it was, it was exciting. It was nerve wracking. It was all of the above. Um, and that week, a couple things happened where um, I was the backup that week, my, you know, my true freshman year, and then things didn't go well the first couple series of the game. And now I'm in the game as a true freshman in Blacksburg on Thursday night, ESPN game of the week. I mean, it was just, um, it was overwhelming, quite frankly. 
what was your biggest win in college? Is there a game that you go to and you're like, man, that felt amazing? Uh, Florida State, beating Florida State at Maryland. Um, and I contributed very little to that, except for and Coach Friesen's very generous. Um, you know, one of the things that, I, that I'm most proud of is, and I, and I played on and off, you know, throughout my career at Maryland, but it was, it was ups and downs and, and injuries and all of these things. But I was always in the game. Um, and through preparation and during the game. Um, and I always approached it as if I was, you know, I was on the field. And so the Florida State game, I, I played sparingly, if at all, um, but, um, you know, was able to make some recommendations per some defenses that we saw and prepared for, et cetera. But that was more so just about, the, I think they were ranked number three at the time. We were having a terrible season. And, um, and yet, in spite of all of this, like the team just showed up and just, you know, gave it everything that we had. And we ended up winning in College Park. Um, and it was like at the time, probably the biggest victory that we had had there. What did that feel like as you're in the locker room afterwards with your teammates? Absolutely crazy. It was absolutely crazy. And I think it was just a, a lesson of um, you just never know. You got to play the game. And because there was, I, I don't know. I'm not a betting person. I don't know what lines are, but I, I can imagine if there was a line on that game, it was, there was little, uh, you know, little if any chance for us to um, even be in the game, let alone win it. And yet nobody in the locker room um, believed it. And they went out and kind of competed and, and we were able to win that game. You said you could feel it in your heart as you're telling the story of your classmate and his mom coming to your house. If you were to locate where you felt that, after that game, where would that be in your body? Huh, that's a tough one. I think that one was more in, in, in my mind. Um, just like so many different thoughts and, um, and just these pictures of just like these moments of people in celebration. And, it, you know, everything from teammates to fans to, you know, family members, et cetera. Um, and I just kind of have all of these different snapshots of people just um, experiencing true joy kind of in the midst of that, uh, uh, that moment. And do you think today as you help lead an organization, you use sort of that mind and those pictures more or less than the heart and that feeling uh, that gets you revved up and energized to, to make a shift. Where, where do you think you lean? If you have heart on one side and head on the other, where, where are you leaning with both of those? Yeah. So I, th I think for me, it's kind of this process of constantly being in assessment mode. Right. And so um, the answer is I obsess over the intersection of those two. Um, and we want to be empathetic and we want to, to always lead with our hearts um, but we've also got to think through it with our minds. Right. And so, especially in the, the, the space that I work in, um, where, you know, it's, it's centered around people uh, as a lot of spaces are. So I would say, I love the intersection of the head and the heart. Um, and then I'm constantly assessing whether this moment, um, requires more of one than the other. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I love the head for preparation and then the heart for performance. I love the idea of leveraging analytics, but then maybe not even your heart, but trusting your gut 
Uh, there's some science around this other brain that exists that at times we just need to trust our gut and go with gut decisions. And it's just interesting as you talk about your football feelings as maybe more heady and perhaps the reason why you're leading the organization today is because of your heart, because of connection, because of people, as you said, and because of a gift that you were given when you were in eighth grade where you received mentorship. Yeah, I love I love the, the the quote. I forget who this belongs to, but it's it's you know you should teach something shortly after you learned it, while you still remember what it's like to not know it. And you know, right now the the, the picture for me and and how my time here on Earth should be spent is really centered around this idea that um, I envision a world where young people have the access and exposure the discipline and the courage to follow their first purpose. And everything that I'm doing is really centered around doing that. And so, yeah, there's a huge piece of heart that, that um, is involved there, but there's also a lot of strategy and thoughtfulness um, that's required as well. Give everyone an idea of what, your world looks like when you wake up in the morning because anyone that follows you on social media knows that you're not somebody who goes silently into the night and you know even in our conversations over the years you are someone who works uh i mean work ethic is probably one of your top values so Give everyone an idea of what your routine looks like from a day-to-day basis. And um, we'll, we'll go back to football a little bit and, and play around there. But I just think it's an interesting time yeah. to sort of get a sense of your, your routines and habits. And I, th- I think whether it's an organization, whether it's a team or what have you, it, it's going to take the, um, the shape of the leader, right? And, um, you know, there, there are a couple of, of just ways of thinking about life and beliefs um, that I have. And one of them is that the standard pace is for chumps, right? Like that most things where there is a, a time associated with it or a number associated with it, or this is just how the world does it, um, has been formed based upon some people who are really good and some people who are really bad. So, you know, the one example that people give is like, you know, graduating college should take four years. Well, like, Maybe, right? But it's possible to do it in a lot quicker than two than than four years, right? If if you are just really thoughtful and strategic, et cetera. So um, you know, I, I think that I've just modeled my life around like the standard pace is just not for me. Um, so that means getting up early. Um and some of this means um, you know, anywhere between three forty-five and four forty-five, um, get up, get a workout in. Sometimes we have a team meeting at 4.30 in the morning um, for, I'd say, about 24 weeks of the year. We'll have a a 4.30 a.m. staff meeting. Um, So we're getting up early. We're starting doing hard things early on. Um, Again, trying to kind of get the hardest things done before noon. Um, And then... Uh, a lot of what I do is centered around taking care of the team, you know, so as the leader of an organization that has, you know, 20 or so full-time employees, um, it's thinking about my team. It's thinking about how I can best serve and take care of them. Um, I think, you know, that's a, a huge part of leadership. Um, I have an amazing wife and two kids. So I'm thinking about uh, my wife is extremely 
um, active herself. So she's, she's working long hours as well. Um, so thinking about the family and then at night I'm spending time at dinners or functions, um, where I am, you know, networking and, and, you know, reconnecting with, with donors and people that make this organization go around. Um, so, you know, and then I'll get to bed at, at 10, 30, 11 o'clock and get up and do it all over again. But I think the biggest thing for me that I have is it's perceived as work, you know, work ethic or what have you, but I, I truly have not worked. I've never worked. You know, I've, I've been so fortunate to live my first purpose um, that uh, I cannot picture doing anything else. You mentioned that feeling that that mother gave you when she came to the door and almost feeling selfish. Wow, this feels so good. And yeah. the inability to find that feeling other than helping people. What do you do to make sure that you are empowering those people rather than just helping them because of how it makes you feel? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that goes back to the whole loving to success and not loving to death. Um, you know, I think part of that is, is just also within the, the, the framework or the, the process that we've established here, which says that, I mean, very simply put, um, where do we as humans get fulfillment from? We get fulfillment um, from giving, we get fulfillment from being grateful. Um, but I think we also get fulfillment from, from progressing, you know, and growing. And um, so it's our ability and we always say the map is pointless if you don't know where you're at on it. So there's this self, um, assessment, um, we call it radical self inquiry where we say, all right, where is this young person? Where is, um, this college athlete that we're working with? So now we know where we're starting from and their starting points different than my starting points, different than your starting point, but we have this clear quantifiable starting point. And then we say, if the stars aligned, what would a home run look like for you as it relates to progress in this area? And now we're able to all agree on that. So it's pretty, pretty quantifiable. Now, where, you know, it becomes less clear is, okay, how are we going to get there? And so you build strategies and things like that. And then you're constantly iterating based upon what you're learning on the journey. But I think that understanding the starting point and understanding the, where you're going are, are the two critical pieces um, in loving someone to success and not loving them to death. Because otherwise you just show up and you just say, oh man, you had, you, you know, you fell on some tough luck. You know, we have a, a young person in our program who, you know, talks about the, the eight minutes between when they heard the second gunshot, which was their father killing their mother and then killing himself. And the eight minutes between that second gunshot and when the ambulance arrived and what they did to, to keep their siblings from the room and going in and seeing what just happened, right? It's really easy to look that kid in their face and say, it's okay that you're not doing well in school. It's okay that you're not, you know, uh, you don't have a great attitude. It's okay that you don't have a plan for your future. But I think the biggest thing, the biggest narrative that we share and the thing that we hold, you know, um, believe in wholeheartedly is that it's going to be your behavior from this point forward that's going to determine what your success looks like, not the reality of your past. And, um, and I think that that is so critical for us to continue to tell ourselves first and foremost, but also the young people that we're working with that, um, that 
based on what you do, your behavior will determine what your future looks like, not things that happened in your past. How do you handle when somebody is not on board with, look, you, you guys don't sugarcoat. This is a time commitment. It requires discipline. The work that you're doing, they're going to have to put it in. How do you handle when someone's just not up for it? Yeah. So our program is built around this idea dreams don't work unless you do. So for a student to get into our program, these are juniors in high school. They come for six weeks at 530 in the morning. So that's the filter there. So we're going to learn really quickly. The crazy thing about this, Brian, is that we're learning that young people are longing for authentic challenge. They don't want the standards to be lowered for them. They don't want expectations to be lowered for them. And while that tends to be what we as a society naturally go to, what we're learning is that it's a lot easier to get a kid to show up at 5.30 in the morning than it is at 3.30 in the afternoon because it's undeniable at 5.30 in the morning that they actually did something that was worth it. And that's, you know, this goes to the whole everybody gets a trophy and all of this other stuff. I think we're, we're messing with people when we lower the expectation, we're messing with people's minds and um, real sense of self when we kind of just make everything the same for everyone. It's just, it's fascinating. You also, they have to do the Rubik's Cube. I remember, I don't know if you still do the bow tie stuff, but you also make things challenging for them and, and sort of say, you can do this. Uh, we believe in you and there have been people ahead of you who have also walked this path. So I don't think you ask anybody to do something that you're not able to do yourself as well. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's huge. I think leadership is about modeling, which is why, you know, um, I've got a set as somebody said that, and I, I don't this, I don't know how well this analogy actually plays. Cause I don't know anything about like dog racing, but somebody said in like dog racing or one of these things, there's like actually a rabbit on the inside of the track that sets the pace for the dogs or something, you know, and it's like, as a leader, your job is to be the rabbit. So you've got to actually set the pace that you want everybody else to run. And so, you know, so for me, that means that I got to live this. I can't have everyone else, um, you know, talking about hard work if I'm not doing it myself. Um, so I think that, that that's kind of a critical piece to what we're doing. Um, and then we start to see that, wait a second, this works. Wait a second. This senior now is going on to this college and I had a chance to witness what their process looked like. Okay. So now that starts to build my belief system that, oh, it's not just them. I can do this too. And then we start to see it. And and now we're getting to the point we have hundreds of graduating students who are going to be the first in their family to go to college, who are going to be the first in their family to do a lot of things. And it's all as a result of being exposed and having access to other people who are doing it as well. What's cool about what you all set up was you talked about gratitude, helping other people and then personal fulfillment and the science around happiness actually suggests those. Uh, there's also being social and being part of a family or a community or being part of something bigger than yourself, which you also do at your organization. So you're also in alignment with the science of what will make someone live a meaningful and purposeful and, and happy life, which is just cool to see it literally embedded in to your processes and, and how you go about doing it. What questions do you constantly ask? What are the questions that you are posing to your leadership team or 
to your, your students or to yourself? What are the questions that you feel like help you stay the course to make sure you're showing up the way that you want to show up and that the organization's showing up the way that they want to show up? Yeah, so I, I think a lot of this is centered around um, a choice that we have as people, as an organization, um, which is um, what lens are we going to choose to see uh, our reality, you know, our circumstances through? And I think that boils down to, is it going to be an optimistic and a positive lens or is it going to be negative? And, and, and so this idea that what you focus on, you feel, what you focus on expands, um, you know, I think is kind of commonly known. And so the first thing is, is we say, we're going to see um, the world through a, a lens of optimism and, and positivity. And so when that's the reality, I ask three questions. Number one is what's right. The second question is what's the opportunity? And the third question is what's underneath our fingers? What can we actually control? And so I think in regardless of whether it's planning a program, whether it's planning an event, whether it's talking through a, a tough situation, um, you know, as you mentioned right now, we're kind of having this conversation in the midst of, um, of this coronavirus and, and this COVID-19. And um, those three questions still apply. What's right? What's the opportunity and uh, what's underneath our fingers? So I think those would be the three biggest questions that I ask. Um, but then I think another question that, I, that I, I try to ask often, but I need to ask it even more is, how are you doing? You know, whether it's our students, whether it's staff, we can't overstep and understand this reality that people need to be acknowledged, appreciated, accepted, and cared for before anything else, how are you doing? And when I ask that question, which isn't as much as I'd, as I'd like to, um, it's something I'm reminding myself daily, um, we tend to just start from such a different place. And then it allows us to get all the work done beyond that. It's interesting because I think I read some research around the biggest lie that people say is, I'm okay or I'm fine. And so, to just piggyback off that question, how are you doing is like a question that we ask all the time. And everyone's like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm fine. No, but like, seriously, how are you doing? what's going on in your life? Tell me about, tell me what's going on. What's going on in your family? What's going on at home? What's going on? You know, like really seeing people and being, I'm going to use the word fearless enough, fearless enough to ask that question and know that the response might not be pretty. Mm. And I think, a lot of us don't want to sit in that discomfort because yeah. we don't know what to do. We don't, it's like when someone passes away, how are you doing? Or when someone's going through something tough, if they say not, not well, I think a lot of us feel like we don't have the skills and the tools to then be there. And most people, to your point, they just want to felt heard, want space, want to know that you care. And so yeah, I'm going to challenge you to even go one step lower, right? To like sit with that and to notice when they say I'm fine or I'm okay, to just push a little, to mm -hmm. really, uh, all right, I just want to really make sure like there's a lot going on or I know this happened or it's 5.30 in the morning, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Uh, so really like going to that next level. That's strong. Back to your days at, at at college park and playing football. So you mentioned, Hey, we've got like a college athlete and we want to be in support of that person and helping them along their journey. As you look back at your experience at college park, 
what if you were one of these kids that went through your program and certainly you had a mentor and, and that influenced you in this massive way. And we don't want to make light of that, but what if you had actually gone through your program and then been at Maryland, how would your program have impacted you uh, and your college experience? Yeah, I think that's one of the most, um, uh, again, I, I hate to use the same word of, of fulfilling, but you know, whether it's myself, whether it's team members that we have here and someone says like, we're, we're building and we've built the program that we wish we had. Um, I think it would have changed everything for me, honestly. Um, our first, we have six core pillars. The first is a strong mind, you know? And when I think back to my mindset, even to this day, but certainly, you know, as a high school junior and senior, I had anything but a strong mind. I was good when things were going well, but any piece of adversity, any piece of something being a little bit off and I tanked. And so I think, you know, one of both the most gratifying pieces of this, but also one of the most challenging parts is we've really built this around a lot of my weaknesses. The things where I look back and I say, man, I did that wrong. Well, let's try to change that for the next person. Oh boy. I, in that moment of truth, I was great when I was undeniably the best, but when it came head to head and it was, I would fold in those moments. Boy, what does that look like? So we've, um, we've built this thing around things we wish we had and then shortcomings and areas of, uh, of weakness and vulnerability that we had as a team um, to help this next group of people. So I think, you know, as it related to how I competed and prepared for games would have been different. I think instead of stepping on the field and being concerned with what 50,000 people thought of me, um, if I would have embraced my brothers, um, you know, and my teammates and my coaches and just found confidence in that preparation, I think things would have gone differently. I think, you know, there, there are a whole bunch of things that when I look back at the things that we're instilling and not only just instilling, but giving these young people opportunities for reps at some, there are some things that you're just not going to be good at until you're bad at them multiple times. And so what we do is we give students a chance to be bad, but be bad early and be bad in an environment that's somewhat safe so that when the actual moments of truth come, I've been here before. And there is just something about all of us that when we walk into a place or a space or, or a situation that we've actually experienced in the past, that our confidence is a little bit greater the next time through. And I just think that all those things would have helped as, you know, as I progressed to college. And from my perspective, that was the most alive and animated you've been in our, our conversation here because I think there is the driver. I know that this would have been helpful for me. Uh, and I know just starting with the foundation of having a strong mind would have let me get closer to fulfilling my potential, uh, whatever you want to call fulfilling potential as because potentials. I love, in, I love that word in some ways. And then in other ways, I, I, I struggle with it because we never know what someone's potential is. But I do believe that if we don't think about how do we fulfill potential, then we don't have anything that we're really working towards. Back to you know, what you said earlier about, hey, 
what's the best case scenario for this person? Like what, what are their, what are their dreams? What are their aspirations? And, and then what can we do to connect the dots to try to put them in positions to, to get them there? So it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think to close that loop on that, you know, for me in hindsight, um, if I had to boil it down, it's like, boy, I wish I would have known the power of gratitude when I was younger. And boy, I wish I would have known that, I forget what it is, but 95% of my fears will never come true. You know, and if I'm, if I look back and if I'm honest, boy, how many decisions did I make based upon fear? Boy, how many decisions did I make where it was strictly driven by, by me and selfishness as opposed to gratitude and, 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 you know, generosity, those types of things I think they all they can alter the course of somebody's life. And so the earlier that we can expose young people to that, the better chance we have to putting them on a different trajectory. But here's the amazing part about Jordan that I want people to know. Here he is. He's a starting quarterback at the University of Maryland playing ACC football, and he's a freshman. And he has it in his mind that he wants to start a nonprofit that helps give back to kids in the way that he was given back to in eighth grade. And during his time at Maryland, he networks with a bunch of influential people at University of Maryland, including Andrew Friedson, who I, we started this conver- conversation talking about. And you had the wherewithal to leverage your experience, even if you didn't necessarily love football at the time, you knew that there were opportunities that it presented. And you walk through those doors and you shake those hands. And I went to... Um, your golf tournament years ago and saw it in person. And I saw the University of Maryland community in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, um, supporting you. And so I understand how your organization today would have been helpful for you then. And I think it's fair to also give you a lot of credit because I see so many college athletes who don't realize the opportunity that's right there in front of them to leverage those four years. I didn't realize it when I was in college. I went to Syracuse. Like there's an incredible network of people at Syracuse that I didn't tap into at all when I was in college. And I didn't even realize that that network and the gift that that network provided. And you did. And so um, I just want to call that out because I think it, there will be college athletes that listen to this that are not leveraging their influence in a way that they could to get to where they want to go. And it's one of the stories that, that sticks with me because I think you could have easily just put yourself completely into what you needed to do, throwing a football, you know, and just that, but you mentioned earlier, you got good grades in college. You then went on to get your MBA at one of the top universities, Columbia university, um, like very small percentage of people do that. So I think the flip side to all this was that you had to find a way to support yourself and to navigate those waters. And maybe that is what allowed you to create something bigger than yourself. So um, just another perspective on it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting thinking back to Andrew Friedson, who, um, you know, I I admired as a classmate of his, I admire um, his, his heart, for service and what he's doing currently, you know, but uh, one of the things I've always believed is in order to be interesting, the first step is to be interested. And, um, and, and I can say that one of my gifts is that I, I am kind of naturally curious and naturally interested in what other people are into and think about. And I remember with Andrew Friedson 
uh, specifically, you know, I'll never forget he would talk about how he structured his day. So Andrew was the student body president at the University of Maryland while I was the quarterback. And, and we would kind of um, connect at different, different points. And I asked him one time, you know, how do you use your day? And I'll, I'll, I'll never forget him talking about handwritten letters and that, you know, he could do those late at night. Um, because during the day he needed to utilize the time to be face to face with people and to go to events, et cetera. And it was just these little tips, um, that, you know, I gathered from him as he was, you know, the student body president and, and obviously doing well academically himself that I was able to take and learn. But then the other piece of it was again, kind of going back to this idea of being a bridge. Well, then I could introduce Andrew to someone else who made sense. And then Andrew would introduce me. And so it was kind of this understanding of um, be interested, be curious in what other people are doing, even if it's not kind of within your wheelhouse. Um, and then, you know, when the time comes, be willing to, to be open and share about what you're interested in. Um, and then just constantly be looking, you know, for ways to connect people. And so um, that has just kind of played itself out over and over again in a bunch of my friendships and, and, um, and relationships. And, uh, and it's been extremely fruitful, um, certainly for me and hopefully for uh, my friends and colleagues. Oh, you hit the nail on the head. For me, what I've come to this realization that the people that I want to work with are connectors. And when I say connectors, yes, they connect people with other great people and they believe in this idea that all boats rise with a rising tide. But they also are able to connect with nature. They're mm -hmm. able to connect with their family. They're able mm -hmm. to connect with themselves and their values. And mm -hmm. so that word connection to me is, mm -hmm. I literally have pulled it out as when I think about like what I care most about, I care most about humans and humanity. And that's like my top value is mm -hmm. what can I do to make the world better? And then from there, who do I want to work with? I want to work with connectors and I want to work with lifelong learners. Mm. And to be a lifelong learner, you have to be curious. Yeah. And so you hit the nail on the head and it's why we jive so well is because you are a connector. Uh, I like to think of myself in that same light mm. and then a lifelong learner. And the whole idea of this podcast is to, for me to continue to learn and grow. And so that is why I think there is an ability for us to do great work because you're going to be connecting and, uh, and learning. And so I'm so happy you, you brought that up. I really am. Really. Talk about the app and what you're developing and also your entrepreneurial spirit, because I know a lot of nonprofit leaders who want to change the world, want to make the world a better place. But when it comes to figuring out ways to be entrepreneurial, they don't really have that. You had Magic Johnson come to Lancaster, Pennsylvania last year for your your event uh, and you know raise a bunch of money for your organization you have started an app you went to get your MBA there's a part of you that's also very entrepreneurial so talk about the mindset that goes into that talk about the technology that you're doing the event that you had with magic all that sort of stuff because I think it, it speaks to your fearlessness and willing to take risks and try new things uh, in hopes to get to where you want to go yeah I think one of the thinking back literally to my you know, high school, time in high school, one of the things my mentor used to always say is we don't lack resources, we lack resourcefulness. So the fact that I didn't have much was never going to be uh, an acceptable um, kind of excuse as to why I didn't produce. And I think that entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurship at its core, at its, at its base is being resourceful. It's how do you, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, the closest thing to magic um, in real life, right? Like you take something that doesn't appear and you make it appear. Um, well, you know, 
I was pretty good at that from my childhood. The, my whole childhood was about taking things that didn't appear and make them appear. Um, and so I think that that's one of the things, the narratives that we're spreading that we truly believe, which is that um, from this point forward, those who've been through the most have a chance to go the furthest because they've already exercised this muscle of being resourceful. And so, and connecting dots. So, you know, for me, I always joke around, I was an entrepreneur. I, you know, would go to the playground. Um, kids are always getting hurt at the playground. And when you hit this age of like fourth grade through eighth grade, um, everybody would go home with a skinned knee or skinned elbow or something, and no one had Band-Aids. So I would just go to the, to the CVS, buy a box of Band-Aids, and sell them one by one to the kids who got hurt at the playground, right? Like, that's just always been in me. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, you know, I was entrepreneurial in ways that weren't good um, early on, right? With, but so that, that's just kind of always been in my, in my nature. Um, but there's a part of that to me where, you know, it just, it's the creative process. It's thinking about and empathizing with what others perceive as value, et cetera, that is just at the core of entrepreneurship. So um, two things that I'm working on right now that I'm really excited about. Number one, we've already talked about, which is this nonprofit where we're helping juniors and seniors in high school think about life after high school. And that is such an individualized um, process because the reality is, is that there is not a one size fits all approach to this. And I think as a society, at times we've tried to make it that um, in saying that, you know, whether it's everyone should go to college or everyone should do this. And, uh, and I think that's super individual. So we're, we're working on that. And that's a nonprofit. The second thing that I'm doing um, that is in its infant stages, but, but we think has huge potential is helping um, college athletes transition to career. And we're doing this through a mobile solution that connects college athletes with alumni from their university. And, and again, it's kind of within this framework of providing them access and exposure to the different professions and fields that exist for them um, so that they can, you know, get internships so that they can explore what it means to be, um, you know, to potentially work for these companies after they conclude um, their college uh, sports careers, but also another huge part of this is, as you know, you have heard a million times, um, but others may not have, is this idea of college athletes not realizing how many skills they've developed that are transferable. And, um, and so we are currently working with the University of Maryland um, and in talks with some other um, colleges and universities to help their college athletes make this transition um, in, a, in a smooth way. As you talk, Jordan, and I've always been blown away by your capacity to do this, and I've seen you in a lot of different environments, vocabulary is so intentional for you. You leverage quotes. You play with words and, and get words, get people thinking about how they're using vocabulary. What do you intentionally do to make sure that you are constantly sharpening your vocabulary acts? Yeah, so... I think it's, it's this constant balance of authenticity, um, simplicity, um, and, and intention, you know, and, and, and meaning. And so it's just, it's constantly reimagining, am I conveying this message, um, 
in a way that is digestible, in a way that is actionable um, for others, if you know, if if, if uh, applicable. And um, and then I just again I think repetitions at that. The other piece is just hearing the way that others do it. Uh, you know, the the this idea that. Um, I would give nothing for the simplicity on this side of complexity, but I'd give everything for this, the simplicity on the other side of complexity always like really resonates with me. And so it's this, you know, how can I be thoughtful and go through this process? But at the end of the day, I should be able to deliver something that's very, very simple and understandable. Um, and I just think that language and words is, you know, uh, the more that we've mastered it, the, the better we can do that. But as I look over your shoulder, I see these big like whiteboards with all kinds of notes. Are you someone who's constantly taking notes, writing things down? Are you reading podcasts? Like, how are you sharpening that? Like, what do you do intentionally to make sure that you're progressing and growing and getting better at what you do? Yeah, I think it's just consumption of all types of content. Um, you know, read daily, listen to podcasts daily. Um, I have conversations daily, um, watching YouTube videos daily, you know, the more information that, and content that I can consume, um, is it just gives me, um, more options as it relates to then down the road, um, applying, you know, uh, this information. How do you capture it? Um, so big, big on, you know, notes and, uh, you know, my iPhone, I, I screenshot so many things and kind of break it up and put it into different folders and files in my phone. Um, and then the, the hard part, which I'm constantly reminding myself to do is then you got to go back and actually review it. Right. Um, and so trying to build that into my, my daily, um, routines and habits to, to go back and refresh over this information. Awesome. Jordan. I uh, can't tell you what a joy it's been getting to know you and excited for everything that you're doing right now and everything you'll continue to do in the future. Give everyone else some more context as far as where they can follow along social media wise with you, also with the organizations and what you're up to. Um, let everyone know where they can find all that stuff. Sure. Um, on Instagram, Jordan underscore Steffi, S-T-E-F-F-Y. Uh, and then Atalo, A-T-T-O-L-L-O, prep.org is the website for, uh, for the nonprofit. So um, both of, you know, all of my, everything that I do are kind of through those two different um, platforms. And, um, and yeah, just super excited to, to have a chance to chat with you, Brian. It's always inspiring and informing and, um, and honored that you had me on the show. Awesome. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. You can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. Jordan, thank you. Thank you for everything that you do on a daily basis. Thank you for your heart. Thank you for your head. Uh, just really grateful to get to know you. And uh, I know we're going to talk real soon about everything that's going on in the world as well. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Yeah, I love I love the the, the quote. I forget who this belongs to, but it's it's you know you should teach something shortly after you learned it, while you still remember what it's like to not know it. And you know, right now the the, the picture for me and and how my time here on Earth should be spent is really centered around this idea that um, I envision a world where young people have 
the access and exposure, the discipline and the courage to follow their first purpose. And everything that I'm doing is really centered around doing that. And so, yeah, there's a huge piece of heart that, that um, is involved there, but there's also a lot of strategy and thoughtfulness um, that's required as well. 